Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. If I told you roughly 550 days ago, that 550 days from now, the United States will have been stripped of its AAA credit rating. It would have been denied credit from most blue chip lenders as a result of its catastrophic level of indebtedness and its increasing inability to repay that debt. Trillions of dollars every year have to be paid out by the United States in interest payments. And these are banknotes that they simply don't have. And so they print many, many more. And because they're merely printing them, and that fewer and fewer people are using them as a reserve currency, and less and less economic activity is taking place in that debased currency, the problem keeps on getting worse compounding itself at every turn. The double A might soon be a single A, and soon no one would lend money to the United States at all. And yet Joe Biden, whistling in the dark, continues to send gigantic tranches of American taxpayers' money to the regime in Kiev, even though the mass media, which told us for most of the last 550 days, that Russia was losing, Ukraine was winning, that Russia was using cannibalized parts from washing machines for its military materiel, the mass media that told us that women were leaning out of windows in Kiev and throwing jars of tomatoes and knocking out Russian ordnance with them, on a daily basis that told us a Russian warship F off, that told us the ghost of Kiev was destroying Russian power. Now, the same media, without even a scintilla of an explanation of its U-turn, is telling us that Ukraine is losing, that for every hundred yards, they are advancing towards tiny villages that not even any Ukrainian has ever heard of, is costing them literally thousands of lives, lives and limbs, life's blood and mental health, which will destroy the Ukrainian people, possibly forever, certainly for many, many decades. That same media that encouraged all this madness, this insanity, is now universally recording that Ukraine's summer counter-offensive has comprehensively failed. Worse, that the Russians are on the advance. That new and greater reinforcements on the Russian side 
are arriving at the front and they are advancing through Ukrainian lines like a knife through butter. Still, the mainstream media on the television has not caught up with the heavyweight newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the big German, Italian and French newspapers, and even one or two of what pass for heavyweight journals in the United Kingdom have all over the last couple of weeks recorded that Ukraine is losing the war. Why then double down? Why throw good money after bad? Why reinforce failure? For that is what we are doing now, indeed have been doing for many months hence. Why ruin our own economies for a regime in Kiev that is not much longer for this world, metaphorically, one hopes, uh, but possibly literally also? Why are we destroying our economies, debasing our currency, bankrupting our societies? The Times asked this week, why is Britain so poor? And it's a good question. Since I've been on my travels for most of this year, I meet British people all over the place, and all of them have the same tale. What is there to go back to? What is there to go back for? British society is tearing itself apart, crime is rampant, the economy is sinking, prices are rising, and the cold winter months are only a matter of weeks away. Indeed, amidst all this global warming, Britain just turned in the worst summer in 55 years. It rained more in July than it has ever rained in any July in recorded British history. Perhaps a subject that we will return to tonight and in weeks to come. What is there to go back to in Britain? Precious little. What is there to go back to in Germany, in France, in Italy, in Spain, in country after country, in the war party? The governments are falling, the credibility of the political system collapsing, in tune, in synchronicity with the falling economic numbers. Britain will be in recession. Germany is already in recession. The United States is staying out of recession by the aforementioned tactic of printing unlimited dollar bills worth less with every bill that rolls off the press. The West is sinking. The sun has sunk already in the West but risen in the East. If I had told you 550 days ago that the Russian economy under total onslaught, under total economic war is growing while the economies of Germany and Britain are in recession, you might not have believed me. But you should have because it's exactly what I predicted. I'm not saying that out of any vainglory, believe me. But it's about time people took into account that on all of the big questions of the last 25 years, I and people like me have been right, and the experts, the ministers, the pundits, the uh, correspondents, uh, the pontificators, 
on radio and television have been comprehensively wrong. I paid for being right with my job. They were paid for being wrong with more money, more titles, and more responsibility. It's something to bear in your mind. Much of tonight will concentrate on France, on the disastrous turn of events in Francophone Africa, where country after country is literally kicking France out the door. After centuries of exploitation, of humiliation, of ongoing economic subjugation, even when the tricolor was run down the flagpole and the flags of nominally independent countries was run up, France continued to dominate everything meaningful in the lives of their former colonies in West Africa. The language remained French. The currency remained the French currency. In this case, nowadays, the franc. The bank guarantees, the gold deposits are all in the vaults in Paris. Countries like Niger, where a military uprising backed, it seems, by millions of the population of that country, has overthrown a French puppet government, as has happened in neighboring country after country over this last period. France has counted on its soft power and the corruption of the political class in its former colonies to keep it in the peacock position. But these days are rapidly coming to an end, and France is now openly threatening military action to overturn the usurpers who overthrew and now hold as a prisoner in the presidential palace, the former puppet ruler of Niger. As I said on Sunday, Niger is a much more important country than most people have given it credit for. In fact, many people, including people who definitely should know better, continue to confuse Niger and Nigeria. The spelling of Nigerian is not the same as the spelling of a Nigerian. Get it right, Mr. Pundit, if you're going to pontificate on very important, significant events that are unfolding. And they are these, that 80% of every light that's burning in France this evening is powered by the uranium sent to France at measly prices by the poor people of Niger, whose uranium it originally was, who dug it, who processed it, and who sent it to France at a fraction of the price that it was worth. And that price paid in French currency for that matter. 80% of all the lights in France are powered by Niger, but only 20% of the people of Niger have any electricity at all. Just ponder that. But the worm is turning in Africa, you see. The new generation of military officers, like that incredible, fine, 35-year-old leader of Burkina Fasi, Ibrahim 
Treore. You saw him in Moscow. You saw his arrival back in Ouagadougou to a crowd of scores of thousands of jubilant people. Young officers are no longer prepared to tolerate the mass impoverishment of their own citizens for the enrichment of a tiny ruling elite and its small comprador to the ultimate benefit of the former colonial power in France. So if France has recourse to military action to overturn the outcome of the uprising in Niger, they may be biting off far more than they can chew. For they will not only be fighting the armed forces of Niger, they'll be fighting not only some of their neighboring countries who have declared that any attack on Niger will be an attack on them and that they will send their armed forces to fight France and anyone who joins France in a military aggression against Niger. But the most important of all the new factors is that the chief of staff of the Algerian army, Niger's northern neighbor, the chief of staff flew at a moment's notice to Moscow yesterday and spent the day with the Russian Minister of Defense and the chiefs of the armed forces of Russia. Algeria has a long, long friendship with Russia. Going back to the days when the French were murdering Algerians in Algeria and in Paris, when the Algerian people were forced to give up the lives of more than a million of their people to achieve their independence from a French colonial situation in which France pretended that Algeria was literally, actually a part of France, even though it was in Africa. Who supported the FLN? Who supported the heroes of the Algerian revolution? Who armed them? Who funded them? Who proselytized for them? Who propagandized for them? Yes, the same country that did the same for Mozambique, for Angola, for Zimbabwe, for Namibia, and of course, most importantly of all, for the Republic of South Africa. They wonder why Russia is popular in Africa and France and Britain and Belgium and the other colonists are unpopular. How could it be otherwise? So Algeria's long defense treaty relationship with Russia is such that when Algeria says that it will not stand by if Niger is attacked by the colonial powers, you can be sure that they will do so with the full support of Russia. Russian arms, maybe Russian fighters. I understand that the Wagner Group are currently out of work with the whole panoply of Russian state power in its ironclad alliance with China may soon be involved in a conflict in a tiny African country. Before last week, 
many had never heard of and certainly could not place on a map. So World War III might not be triggered in the Persian Gulf, might not be triggered in the Straits of Taiwan, might not be triggered on the steppe in the Ukraine. It might, after all, be triggered in Africa, in West Africa, where the proxy ECOWAS, the armed forces of the West African states, controlled, organized, and funded by the United States and France, end up at war with their neighbors, backed by Russia, another new flashpoint arising in the world. And finally, we'll be talking tonight about what's left. I no longer describe myself as left because what people have been led to believe, led mainly by the so-called left themselves, to define a leftism which has nothing to do with me, neither I to do with it. Nowadays, being left means supporting the European Union. That's right, fortress Europe that sees thousands drown in the Mediterranean before they will allow the walls of their fortress to be breached. The European Union, where the national minimum wage of 12, 12 of the members of the European Union is less than 500 euros per month. Do you know that the minimum wage in Bulgaria, a member of the European Union, averages at 289 euros per month? No wonder when it was possible to do so. So many Bulgarians came to live and work in my own country of Britain. No wonder Bulgaria has been left with so few of its finest, strongest, most economically active citizens, for they have had to go elsewhere in the EU to live. Nowadays, being left is to support that organization run by the unelected bureaucrats in Brussels and by the plutocrats of the European Central Bank. Being left today means supporting NATO and the American proxy war against Ukraine. Being left today means hating Russia, hating China, and increasingly, by extension, hating its friends, their friends and allies around the world. Before you know it, nobody on the left will have even a good word to say about Hugo Chavez. Oh, wait, that has already happened. Being left today means being obsessed, infatuated, not with economic issues, with bread and butter issues, issues of wealth and power and the redistribution of both, being obsessed not by the material conditions of the mass of the people, the working people, no, being obsessed with the rights of hairy-ass grown men to get their kit off in front of our sisters, our daughters, and our wives in changing rooms in Primark 
or in swimming pools and gymnasium clubs. It is to be obsessed by sex, gender, and race. Well, if that's left, I've left the left. But there's an important new book which makes the case that the left will have to begin again at the beginning. We'll be talking to one of the authors. But I'll be right back, I promise. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Max Abrams is a gentleman and a scholar, a scholar of the very first rank, a writer, an analyst, a broadcaster, and a professor of politics in the United States of America. And there's so much Americana to pick over this week as every week. It's very lucky that he could join us this evening. Uh, Professor Max, thank you for joining us. If we may, can we start with your local troubles in Washington? Um, it used to be the case that only banana republics uh, tried to uh, criminalize uh, the leaders of their opposition, their predecessor, their potential successor. Uh, but we now have a situation where a bit of a race is developing as to which family will go to jail first, the Trumps or the Bidens. What do you think? Well, it's very unfortunate. The Justice Department is basically an arm of the Democratic Party. And so they are trying to throw the book at Trump. Uh, some people say, you know, Trump isn't above the law. Well, that's true, but nor should he be treated in an unprecedented way. Trump is presently the, the front runner on the Republican side by a lot. The governor, Ron DeSantis, who you know was expected to be a fiercer challenger, but polls show that Trump is very much on top. And so Biden and the various agencies and the media and even the Justice Department are doing everything possible to, to put Trump in prison. Um, and so it's very unfortunate because the United States is basically a two-party uh, two system. So about 50%, about 50% of Americans are Republican, equal number with Democrats. 
And so one of the main legacies of the Trump administration has been the backlash against it. And so this tremendous cynicism in the United States among about 50% of American citizens who are unprecedented now in their distrust, distrust towards the media, the Justice Department, the intel agencies. And this is really no way to run a democracy. No, although to be fair, uh, if I may, I'm not all that fair to him, usually. Uh, but this predates the election of Donald Trump because they began to try to criminalize him before he even sat down in the Oval Office for the first time. They invented uh, the Russiagate hoax precisely to delegitimize and, if possible, dethrone the president of the republic before he even got his feet under the desk. Yeah, that, that, that is a fact. Um, that is not, you know, just a claim. We can see, you can see this, your viewers can see this if they, if they wanted to research this, that you could see the letter actually from John Brennan to Obama warning that Hillary Clinton was behind Russiagate, that she would, had come up with a strategy that Trump was in cahoots with Russia and that they were colluding. And this actually preceded his election. And from the moment he was elected, um, that basically became a mainstream view, which was you know, perpetrated by all of the instruments of power. And so the entire Trump presidency um, was, in, was a conspiracy theory against him to implicate him for colluding with Putin. They said that, that the Russians had all sorts of compromising material on him, that there was this alleged P-tape um, where prostitutes had, you know, urinated on him. It was completely made up. And not only was it made up, but a, a good portion of Russiagate was actually funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, and it was reported by um, as fact. And then the various impeachments against him were all intended to overturn um, the, the 2016 presidential election. And there are major, major lasting repercussions in terms of the health of the American polity, even beyond those four lost years. I'm telling you, the establishment has lost about 50% of American citizens. They no longer really trust um, all of these major instruments of power, and they shouldn't. Uh, you're too young to have lived through it as I did, but uh, this all knocks Watergate into a cocked hat, you know. Uh, the offenses of the committee to re-elect uh, the president, uh, properly named Creep, uh, to re-elect uh, Richard Nixon, uh, who broke into the Watergate building and set in motion a chain of events that destroyed the presidency of Richard Nixon, that had nothing on the story that you have just adumbrated, never mind the story I'm about to move on to. I mean, a, just a normal American who, you know, is, is, you know, 
average in terms of smart, who follows the news. In a way, you really can't blame them because there are just so many, you know, quote unquote authorities which have spun, you know, this tale. And then these people, just normal citizens, they have friends and they have family and they've all of these people are the recipients of all of this misinformation. So you have huge portions of the American public. They might be perfectly well-intentioned and they have absolutely no idea what's going on. Now, uh, it's unseemly to try and put your chief opponent in jail, to be sure. Uh, but at the same time as they're trying to do that, they seem to be brazenly, I would say recklessly, uh, defending uh, the son of the president, indeed the president himself. So it's a kind of double whammy. They're trying to criminalize Trump whilst keeping themselves out of jail for levels of malfeasance, which make the eyes water. Yeah, I mean, that's 100% correct. What we know for sure, this is not speculation, is that when Joe Biden was vice president, he made a major initiative to coerce the president of Ukraine to fire the prosecutor who was investigating a very shady company called Burisma, which was paying the Biden family, you know, $10 million. And so this was a direct Biden intervention in Ukrainian politics in order to enrich his own family. And that's I, that's terrible, but it's also almost funny in its irony because Trump was impeached the first time uh, for meddling in Ukrainian politics in order for them to investigate the allegations, which I just told you turned out to be totally substantiated. And so the, the Bidens say, oh, yes, we were involved in the firing of this prosecutor, but it wasn't because Joe Biden was profiting in a corrupt way from Burisma. But the problem with the with the Biden argument is that their own business partners, right? These aren't like GOP operatives. These are the Biden's best friends and business partners say that Joe is lying, that in fact, Joe was on the phone about 20 times speaking uh, or at least listening in um, to these conversations about how to send money to the Biden family. Now, that that is a very important issue of corruption, but it is simultaneous to massive Joe Biden support for the Ukraine war, right? And I do not view these issues as completely separate um, for the very reason that Ukrainian officials, I mean, almost definitely have a huge amount of dirt on the Bidens because, again, Joe, you know, Joe Biden has been essentially selecting their prosecutors and has been receiving millions of dollars from Ukraine. And he's 
denying it. Surely Ukrainian officials um, have evidence against Joe Biden. And so potentially they could threaten Biden if he were to in any way limit U.S. assistance to Ukraine. Now, I don't see that happening because Joe Biden is such an enthusiastic supporter of Zelensky. Nonetheless, I'm not sure that he has the freedom of movement to disentangle himself given his shady, you know, corruption in Ukraine. And so what I would like to see more and more of is a connection between these two really important stories of Biden corruption in Ukraine and Biden sort of limitless financial and military support um, in the Ukraine war. I do believe that these are not entirely separate stories and more and more, I hope to see them converge. You'll be telling me next that the Pope is a Catholic. Uh, we'll have to turn, uh, Max, in the time left to us, uh, that uh, uh, to uh, the hitherto little noticed small African state of Niger. As I was seeking to uh, make the case in my monologue, this may turn out to be a the flashpoint just when we were all looking down the straits of Taiwan or across the uh, Ukrainian steppe, uh, we now have shaping up a superpower battle over the uranium riches of Niger. Russia's very close and historic relationship with Algeria, which is Niger's northern neighbor, has been uh, triggered yesterday by a dramatic flight uh, by the chief of the Algerian armed forces to meet with the chief of the Russian armed forces, entirely unscheduled. It's quite clear that Algeria will intervene if Niger is attacked by a French expeditionary force or by the French forces already there, by an American invasion or by the American forces already there. You see where I'm going with this, Professor. Are we in for yet another theater of uh, superpower conflict? I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I follow what you're saying. I think that what you have here is you have two very powerful nuclear countries who are really engaged in brinksmanship. The, the situation in Ukraine is a US-led proxy war against Russia. And increasingly, we are seeing attacks inside Russia. Now, we can dispute, you know, what is the definition of terrorism, etc. But for Russians, that sure looks a lot like terrorism. You know, you have drone strikes going off in the capital, you know, in Moscow. And just today, I read another report that Zelensky is going to get more long range um, you know, capability to increasingly attack in, you know, deep inside of Russia. More and more, this is going to harm Russian civilians. And when you have a situation that fraught, what's going to emerge are potential flashpoints. And any of these flashpoints 
could serve as tripwires to, for example, expand this war by, you know, having Russia, you know, attack a NATO country invoking Article 5, then the gloves really come off. Um, I see a number of potential tripwires which worry me. Um, the situation with Poland could be one of those tripwires. The situation in Belarus could be a tripwire. The situation with shipping could be a tripwire. And now what you're suggesting, and I haven't heard anybody else say this, but you're probably right, that 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 the, that, that situations in the so-called global south could also be another tripwire. And it's one of the reasons why escalation is so dangerous, because there's so much pressure. And, you know, we're not clairvoyant. We can't know for sure which tripwire is going to be the one which is really going to escalate things out of control. And that's precisely why I've been in favor of negotiations for a really long time trying to find some kind of off-ramp to alleviate tensions. And so there aren't so many different avenues for, for you know, a nuclear escalation, World War III. Mr. Nolan's film Oppenheimer is packing them in uh, this week. Uh, do you think the audiences and the public in general have any idea that today's nuclear bombs are 1,000 times more powerful than the one exploded by Oppenheimer and ultimately over Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Oppenheimer is probably the biggest movie in the United States. And the fact that it's being shown around theaters all over the country at exactly the time where high-level Russian officials are saying, look, if this Ukrainian you know, so-called counteroffensive is successful, we may have to use nuclear weapons. You would think that, you know, the millions of viewers would put the two together and say, look, this is a strong argument for de-escalation. Look what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and today's weapons are orders of magnitude, you know, even even bigger. But um First, for what, that's not the conclusion that people seem to be drawing. Um, the American officials are downplaying the possibility of um, a nuclear outcome in this war. Uh, they want Americans to believe that the United States can continuously ramp up its support, its quote unquote support for the Ukrainian side at no risk, and that Russia is unable to escalate any further. And I believe that that's the most dangerous assumption of the Ukraine war. Um, it is true that Russia is fighting very hard and thousands of civilians have been killed in Ukraine, but make no mistake, Russia could escalate more in Ukraine. It could kill many, many more civilians than it already has. And this war can expand. It, it certainly can expand within the region, in Belarus and Poland. And if that were to happen, it could result in, in a World War III. And nuclear usage is not something that we should at all rule out. Um, so I do believe that the Oppenheimer movie is extremely timely, but it's not being interpreted in the way that it should be.
Professor Max Abrams, a gentleman and a scholar, as I told everyone you are. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Much obliged to you. Uh, we've got a poll running. Uh, is France finished in Africa? Is it au revoir or merely à bientôt? Uh, you can answer yes or no on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. Please follow me on Telegram. Uh, on X, as we must now execrably call it, formerly known as Twitter, uh, on the YouTube community stream or on this YouTube stream that many of you are watching on. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm closing on 300,000 subscribers. I want to get there because, believe it or not, algorithmically, it triggers a step up in, uh, in uh, visibility. Uh, on YouTube, and of course, like the show if you're watching on YouTube, if indeed you are liking it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. We're going to talk about the death of the left, and then I'm going to talk about Gonzalo Lira, some potentially dramatic developments in his case, and then it'll be your calls right up to the end of the show. So if you want to speak, get your calls in now. Simon Winlow is one of the authors of The Death of the Left, I am one of the purchasers of the book. Indeed, I'm halfway through it uh, because I have an interest in it. The left died for me uh, quite some time ago. And if it had died for everyone at the same time, and we had started at the beginning again, well, I'd have been a happy man. But I'm not happy because so many people still cling to the illusion of what was the traditional left, or at least hope that what passes for the left nowadays can be reversed and returned to a more traditional perspective. I think if you read this book, you'll find that that is a pipe dream. Simon Winlow joins us. Now, Simon, I'm very grateful uh, to you. Congratulations on the book. I hope that it sells well. It deserves to. Uh, my thesis is this, that uh, what people think of and regularly cuss as left is in fact liberalism. Uh, in fact, I think the left as we knew it has wholesale gone over to liberalism uh, as opposed to socialism, which was where it was located before. Uh, give me your view on that and sketch, if you will, the thesis of the book. Well, the uh, the first thing to say is that uh, both me and my co-author Steve Hall 
have spent our adult lives invested in the institutions of the left. You know, when this is not a right wing criticism of the of the left, it's rather a leftist criticism of the left. And, you know, what we've realized as we've aged is that the left is becoming increasingly irrelevant and distant from the lives of ordinary people. It doesn't propose to advance the material interests of the working class. It doesn't even propose to offer a degree of security to the mo those most in need of help. The left is far more interested in moving closer towards the establishment, so the main political parties, the Labour Party or the Democrats over in the States, are establishment political parties that offer no alternative. It's just the continuation of what already exists. And the radicals in the left, of course, are separatists and divisionists. They're identitarians who disavow the things that we have in common, the forms of solidarity and common interests, which were always at the core of leftist politics. So our realization that the left is dead has prompted the core of the book is a, a historical look at how the left changed and the forces that dragged the left off course as it, it moved into the 20th century. Well, uh, um, like you, uh, I was a part, some say a leading part uh, of the left as long ago as the 1970s certainly by the 80s. Do you think it all died at the miners' defeat in 84, 85? Well, certainly that was a crucial uh, uh, break, break for me, uh, the defeat of the left and the rise of Kinnock and the gradual move of the Labour Party towards the centre ground of British politics indicated that they'd lost all connection to their, their, their core support in the working class. They no longer propose to, you know, offer any degree of material security to ordinary people. And I think that was a real historic tipping point. And from that point onwards, you can see a gap between the ordinary working class voter and the institutions of the left. The gap grows bigger by the year. Uh, did Jeremy Corbyn bring uh, the left back uh, from life support uh, into uh, a walking slightly shambling, but walking a being again? Uh, and if so, could that be repeated in your view? I don't think so. I think uh, I admire Corbyn. I think he is a man of principle, a good man who really wanted to do some good to improve the lot of ordinary people. But the key division is the Corbyn project was dominated by liberal middle-class activists. And as time wore on, Corbyn began to talk much less about, for instance, investing in infrastructure, about bringing industrialism back to the old, the industrialised parts of uh, England and Wales and Scotland, and, and talk, instead talked about the concerns, the cultural concerns of the liberal left. And I think that meant that the Corbyn project was never likely to reattach the Labour Party to its core at the at the core of the working class. Well, I agree with that uh, entirely, but there are many who will balk uh, at that. Uh, the, um, the best argument for your position and mine is the capitulation over Brexit, isn't it? The overwhelming majority of working class Labour supporters supported Brexit. The overwhelming majority of these middle class 
including middle-class leftists, opposed Brexit. Corbyn chose the latter when he should have chosen the former. Precisely. I think Corbyn, in so many respects, is a conviction politician. It's a characteristic that uh, many mainstream politicians try to copy. Corbyn really is a conviction politician, but on the crucial historic issue of Brexit, he abandoned his convictions because he was, for many years, a, a confirmed Eurosceptic. Uh, and of course, he capitulated to his base and all of those who'd rushed to, to support his project and presented the EU as a, a kind of cosmopolitan dream world where people could move around at will um, rather than presenting it as an anti-democratic, thoroughly neoliberalized uh, group of states which are fundamentally committed to the free movement of capital. And the free movement of labor to, uh, to boost uh, profits. I don't know if you heard the stat I gave out earlier, uh, poor Bulgaria, I've, uh, I don't mean to pick on her, uh, but the average minimum wage, uh, the, the minimum wage in Bulgaria is 289 euros per month. Why would the workers in Bulgaria not move to uh, higher wage parts of the European Union and be prepared to work for much less than the workers that are already living in those countries are earning? Well, precisely, George. I think it's really an indicative issue because what you see in the left's refusal to uh, address those realities is their flight from reality into a, uh, an increasingly abstract dream world of ideals and principles. And they're not concerned with the material world in which people go out and get a, get, get a wage together to look after their families and build a life. Increasingly, they're more concerned with other issues and they turn away from reality. And this means that the gap between the working class and the organized left shows no signs of being broken down in the years to come. Well, let's talk about who you mean by the uh, organized left. When I came into uh, more or less full-time political activity, uh, the, the TUC had 14 million uh, affiliated members. Today it has fewer than 6 million. Uh, my own union, the Transport and General Workers Union, as was, now Unite, had more than 2 million members. Uh, there were fighting, uh, politically uh, conscious uh, leaders like Jack Jones, like Hugh Scanlon, uh, like Ken Gill uh, and others. Uh, there was mass support for trade unionism and for labor and for the kind of labor represented by, by Mr. Ben, the late Tony Ben. Uh, nowadays, the TUC only gets up out of its seat uh, to defend, uh, you know, the rainbow, uh, the rainbow coalition and, and sexual and gender politics. You never hear of the TUC engaged on bread and butter issues being experienced by working class men and women. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think you've seen a very strange uh, corruption of traditional British trade unionism throughout the neoliberal era, it watered down and it became more orientated towards cultural issues and divorced from bread and butter economic issues and looking after the material interests of the membership. And it is, uh, you know, in many trade unions now, uh, you know, we've seen a, 
a wave of strikes, but they're taking below inflation settlements. And instead, you see uh, lots of union leaders proclaiming their affinity with, uh, you know, the uh, what you call the Rainbow Alliance, uh, and really having very little to say about the material problems that are faced by the membership. Now, this is not just a British uh, thing, is it? Uh, it's not even just a British and American thing. It's not just the Anglosphere. Uh, if you look at the the disappearance of uh, of PASOK uh, in Greece, uh, the virtually total collapse of the socialist organizations in Italy, uh, if you look at what happened in France, uh, where Mélenchon, the Tony Benn of France, came very close to getting into the final ballot in the last presidential election, but was scuppered by the fact that a tiny number, some 3.5%, still voted for the Labour Party equivalent, which used to rule France. François Mitterrand uh, in uh, early 1980s uh, became a great figure as the socialist president of France. It's a long way down to 3.5% uh, from the days of Mitterrand. This is happening everywhere in Europe too, isn't it? Exactly, yes. And I think, uh, you know, lots of people, lots of ordinary people have re-engaged with politics as a result of their declining life chances, you know, the difficulties they've faced as, uh, you know, their incomes have fallen in the last uh, 20 years in particular. But what you see is, you know, you've seen the rise of uh, the, the far right or, you know, the, the right in, uh, in some European countries. But in most cases, even the far right uh, parties in Italy and elsewhere, they're confirmed neoliberals. They won't change anything in terms of economic management. They're interested purely in cultural issues. And this is the net, you know, the, the, the result of 30 years of absolute uh, uh, conventional neoliberal politics. Everybody agrees on the basics that the market should decide that the rich should be allowed to retain investment capital, to invest freely and retain as much of the profit as possible, and that they should determine how money is spent. And instead, uh, politics has become obsessed with cultural issues. You know, the big jousting, the major arguments in politics these days are about cultural issues, about trans issues or something like that. It's about um, uh, EDI issues. Um, and um, these, these are not, these are important issues, but the left abandonment of the economic realm means that it just becomes increasingly divided, whereas, and it throws away the potential for unity across these different identity groups, which was always at the core of traditional leftist politics, a sense of common cause. And that has been lost now. It's the difference between, uh, as Mr. Ben used to put it, as heard him say it a thousand times, there's nothing frightening about socialism. It's social hyphenism, socialism. And these lefts, as they would probably still describe themselves, really believe in individualism, don't they? They've lost the sense of the social, the collective, the class. Precisely, yes. Individualism is at the core of leftist politics now. It has been for many years, in fact. But all, all the identitarian groups that we've seen proliferate in the last decade in particular, they're built around a kind of separation from groups which are broadly equivalent to them. 
So the difference between, uh, you know, black people and white people or, or you know, uh, Muslims and Jews or uh, your sexual interests uh, are should be irrelevant in the political realm. Socialism looked past these divisions, and in particular with regard to working class politics, it was about identifying sameness, commonalities, the things that we had in common. They should be at the forefront of leftist politics, not the differences, not the individual interests. And of course, the increased obsession with individualism and difference is immediately captured by the corporate world. And as we've seen, uh, you know, corporate America in particular taking, you know, taking advantage of the left's absorption into cultural politics by simply levering up uh, representative groups into see, you know, high level management positions and seeing that they're progressive yeah. while doing absolutely yeah. nothing to raise the wages of those at the bottom of the pile. Yeah, you're, you're supposed to applaud that today's cruise missiles might well have been launched by a woman of color uh, of a particular sexual orientation. Uh, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Uh, tell people how they get your book, please, Simon. Oh, you can buy it from all major retailers, but I would prefer you to have a look at the uh, Policy Press website uh, where you can buy, down, download it or uh, buy it directly. Fabulous. Simon Winlow and Steve Hall, The Death of the Left, Why We Must Begin Again from the Beginning. Thanks, Simon, for that uh, tour Thank de you. force. Much obliged to you. Let's go straight to Simon and Ferrum on Gonzalo Lira. Simon, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, George. Uh, yeah, I, uh, hopefully your listeners have uh, seen the videos that have just be recently been posted in the last day or so uh, by Gonzalo Lira. Um, basically, his uh, plight is uh, somewhat uh, in, in jeopardy. Um, he's um, basically... Uh, posted if people haven't seen it basically he's posted a video describing how his treatment has been the last three months in prison um, how he's been tortured how they've extorted him of uh, thousands of pounds in his accounts etc how he's been subject to 33 hours worth of constant beatings by his cellmates um, in, from briberies from the prison guards um, and uh, after all of that um, he was then uh, given bail and um, that bail has basically uh, allowed him to have time to think. They've given back his passports mysteriously, and they've uh, uh, given back his driving license and other documents. Um, and now uh, he's had to think about it and thought, well, okay, I'm still going to be facing the courts in a few days, and those courts will no doubt find me guilty, and then I will be facing uh, five to eight years in labor camp. Um, he has a heart condition. And he will no doubt, well, he knows that he will die, um, as simple as that. So this very, very brave man has basically decided that his only hope is to leave the country, leave his family, uh, go across the border to Hungary, who's somewhat sympathetic to uh, some of the needs of, um, uh, of his needs, possibly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've listened to this and I just thought, you know, he, he needs so much support from all of us um, to, um, to, for his cause. And that all he did was just tell the truth. He told the truth. He's an American citizen. He just told the truth in somebody else's country, and they've treated him as a criminal. Um, and <laughs> I just wanted you to 
sort of uh, comment on a if there's any way that we can help him mm. um, if there's any projects that we can do to try and you know make other people aware of what's going on because it's it's just dreadful well thank you simon for teeing that up it was my intention to spend some minutes on the plight of gonzalo lira well-known podcaster nowadays person of checkered political uh, background i i hold to none of his positions except the one that says i will tell the truth about ukraine as i see it and that he did very very bravely uh on his own programs uh but also on the mother of all talk shows many many times uh he uh, is was uh, one of our our biggest most viewed uh guests ever on the mother of all talk shows many hundreds of thousands and perhaps a million or more uh viewed his clips on our show and we have been uh sounding the alarm not just in on this three month uh occasion but the last time that he was uh arrested and disappeared by the zelensky regime uh we also had his father as a guest uh, on the mother of all talk shows in his stead i should preface what i'm about to say uh, with this that nothing that comes from a man in captivity can be entirely relied upon he could be being uh, coerced to say things and do things uh, none of us can know that so nothing that uh, a, a man who is not free says can be taken entirely at face value but what happened uh, over the last few days is extremely peculiar to say the least and gonzalo has acknowledged that uh, in the words of a fellow prisoner uh, who he says told him they want you to escape and i could see the uh, reasons for that uh, after all gonzalo lira in their custody is a potential problem not a massive problem at this point in time but it can be a problem that could get larger vis-a-vis -vis the united states whose citizen uh, he is uh, and chile whose citizen also he is he is an american born citizen of the united states of chilean ethnicity and and background uh, so if his fellow prisoner was right and i could see why he might be Gonzalo was effectively invited to escape as a means of solving the problem uh, of his continued incarceration. Uh, what if he died in jail? What if he went on trial and was sentenced to uh, a labor camp uh, which would kill him uh, and so on? Uh, it would be, you could argue, uh, easier for the Ukrainian authorities if uh, Gonzalo Lira would just shuffle away in the night. And that's what I thought had happened in the early hours of this morning, because Gonzalo uh, was given uh, his uh, papers back, he was given bail, uh, and was able to dispense with his electronic tag, so the authorities would not know where he was. 
Now, he faced a geographical uh, dilemma. Presumably, he was in Kharkov. How do you get from Kharkov to the safety of the Russian lines without being killed either by the Ukrainian armed forces or by the Russian armed forces, who would never have heard of him and have no idea who this man on a motorcycle coming towards them was. The only country that he could have tried to get into with any hope of not being immediately sent back was Hungary, which is the only EU country, the only NATO country uh, that is in any way uh, sympathetic to uh, the case that Gonzalo Lira has been making about the Zelensky regime in Kiev. So Gonzalo tells us in three videos and by a series of tweets, which I think have just been on the screen behind me, uh, how he was tortured, how he thought he was going to die, how he was robbed of approximately in total about $100,000, uh, and how suddenly he now saw a window through which he intended to climb. So he drove his motorcycle to the Hungarian border. He made and downloaded, uh, uh, or is it uploaded, forgive me, uh, videos uh, telling this story and explaining that he was about to try and get across the Hungarian border. I myself and others uh, made uh, entreaties towards the Hungarian government to ask them to facilitate his transfer over the border and to give him safe haven, political asylum. He might have been able to stay in Hungary, uh, but there's no uh, direct flights to Russia from there. So he may have gone from Hungary to Serbia where there is a direct flight and gone to Russia, or he may have stayed in Hungary. But in any event, after the early hours of this morning, we have heard absolutely nothing about him. And uh, a, a transsexual American, who is now apparently, bizarrely, the spokesperson for uh, the uh, armed forces of Ukraine, uh, gave a broadcast an hour or so, two hours or so ago, saying that Gonzalo was captured uh, by the Ukrainian authorities at the border, trying to cross illegally into Hungary. We don't know if that's true. We don't know if any of that is true. All we know is that after a brief reappearance, Gonzalo Lira has gone dark again. We are unable to reach him. He's unable to reach us. At one point in the early hours of this morning, I hoped Gonzalo would be here on the show uh, with us this evening, but that was not to be. Uh, he may be safe. He may be back in the custody he was in. But that would beg the question, why release him from it and then allow him to flee and then take him back into custody? Or, I'm very sorry to say, something even darker uh, may have befallen him. I have no evidence of that. I hesitate even to say it but it must be a possibility. Some people don't like Gonzalo Lira. I get that. 
I don't like many aspects of his political positions, his attitudes on various things. But Gonzalo Lira's truth-telling has inflicted strategic damage on Zelensky, on his corrupt regime, and by extension on his NATO uh, enablers and facilitators. That means we should support him. That means we should care about what happens to him. But it also, of course, means that he's in very real danger this evening. Gonzalo Lira, we pray for your safety. Mark in New York might be the, the last caller, but we better line one up uh, otherwise. Mark, go ahead. All right. I just want to say a couple of things. I love you. Love your accent, but more importantly, I love the substance of the things that you're talking about. I seen the phone number up there today, and I said, I got to call because I've got to say a few things. Let me start off by saying I'm actually a registered Democrat. But 1968, I was on the corner of Main and Cherry in Poughkeepsie, New York, for Bobby Kennedy Jr. with the old balloon and the hat on and the apple cider and donuts. My mom loved all those folks. All the way up to Carter, I voted for Clinton and Mario Cuomo. It's over. They've lost their mind. Like Reagan said, they left me. I didn't leave them. And we're going to have to do a few new things in this country. And I'm sorry if the world's going to listen. They're going to have to listen. We will have to start implementing deportations. I'm sorry for you to hear this, but we're going to have to start implementing an amendment to the Constitution on American activity, your existential threat to the United States, We've got to deport you. I'm, I'm talking about U.S. citizens that were born and raised here. We've got to get you out. So we've got to get an amendment. We've got to get that going. Also, reparations for Union soldiers. Uh, I'm all for reparations to a degree. Uh, you know, to a degree, let's see what's happening here. But let's talk Union soldiers, the Federals, the Northerners. They lost farms. They're working in industries, factories, shoemakers. They lost it all. Reparations, Union, soldiers. Got it? Yeah, I've got it. I've never heard of it uh, as a demand before. Uh, but, uh, of course, I'm glad that the Union won the war and the working class of Britain uh, strongly supported the Union cause in the American Civil War, which was, uh, until the First World War, the most ruinous, industrialized slaughter that the world had ever seen. Of course, I support the Union side and hail the Union heroes. It's just a pity that Abraham Lincoln, upon freeing the slaves, turned these very same Union soldiers into the final annihilation of the original Americans, the uh, American indigenous population who came to be called Red Indians, though they were neither Red nor Indians. My mother always says that she knew I was going to uh, grow up not like other boys uh, because I was the only one during the cowboy films and the big Western movies who was always, without equivocation, on the side of those so-called American Indians, who were called savages routinely 
in movies and TV shows at that time, when in fact, the savagery was coming from the white European settlers who stole their land and made false treaties with them and destroyed and ultimately genocided them. 100 million original inhabitants of the Americas from the north to the south, from Canada to Chile. 100 million. How's that for a holocaust? were wiped out by first Spanish, then uh, French and British uh, colonial invasion and occupation. Whether you can pay reparations, uh, I'm not sure. To whom you pay them, I'm not sure. And in any case, it could be that these demands are merely further divides uh, amongst the people we need to unite. There's more than enough wealth in America uh, to solve America's problems. If you stop spending trillions on endless wars, if you stop stuffing trillions down the mouths of the military industrial complex, if you stop sending hundreds of billions to tin pot tyrants, uh, like Zelensky, if you would only bring your armies home, if you would only spend your money in your own country, picking up from the travails uh, into which it has slumped, the degeneracy of American society today, two mass shootings per day in the United States of America, Thousands of bridges in danger of falling down and regularly falling down. Derailments of locomotives carrying some of the most toxic of materials known to man are an everyday occurrence on the decrepit ramshackle United States railway network. Do you know how many bridges China has built in the last 40 years? Take a guess. One million bridges have been built in China in the last 40 years. High-speed trains, safe highways, levels of public safety unimaginable in the United States. There are no mass shootings in China. None. In fact, Chinese police are not even armed. Did you know that? There's social peace and cohesion in China. There is nothing but chaos and disorder in the United States of America. And I say all of that as somebody who loves America, who traveled the length and breadth of America, gave speeches north, south, east, and west. I have a bookcase full of American writers a Spotify playlist full of American artists. I'm about to watch an American movie. I watched a brilliant one last night again. The Blues Brothers, one of the greatest movies ever made. I love America. I don't want to see Americans suffering. That's why I feel so badly about this current state 
of affairs. Military history says, I watch each night with a joint. I don't agree on most things you say, George, but you're entertaining nevertheless. That's because you're smoking a joint. Throw it away. Emancipate yourself from mental slavery and these intoxicants, stupefiers. Sober up, man. Sit up straight and listen to what I'm saying, and then you'll agree with more of it. That's all I've got time for, alas. But I will be back, God willing, on Sunday for the mothership, for the Sunday night mother of all talk shows. It's at the slightly earlier time. I always need to point this out. It's at 7 p.m. UK time on Sunday. There'll be more great guests, more great calls, and more of whatever it is you think I give you. Until then, good night.